Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. O God, whose blessed Son made himself known to his disciples in the breaking of bread, Open the eyes of our faith that we may behold him in all his redeeming work, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Easter greetings to you. Uh, it's good to see you today and to be with you on this beautiful day, this beautiful Easter day. Uh, just before uh, I started preaching here a minute ago, I prayed the alternate collect for the day because as I was preparing, uh, for this time together with you. I read it and it captured my attention. One particular phrase there captured my attention. Um, and it was this, open the eyes of our faith. During the Easter season, it's important that the church spends time considering various aspects of the Paschal mystery. And today I'd like to emphasize seeing Jesus through the eyes of faith. In the scripture reading, we heard about the miraculous appearings of Jesus as an important means of seeing God's redemptive work. In fact, that was the, a crucial thing for the disciples, to see the risen Lord, to know that this was just not theory or uh, speculation, but there was something real that stood behind uh, the, the ideas of redemption uh, and God's redemptive work. So what I'd like to do today is use the, this idea as the jumping off point, really, for the epistle, uh, because first and foremost, Jesus is resurrected and he appears. Jesus makes himself known to his people. He, he shows up. And Luke records in chapter 24 that the women who first saw the empty tomb told all these things to the eleven and to the rest. And scripture says that it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles, but their words seemed to them as an idle tale, and they did not believe them. Now, I'm not sure exactly why they didn't believe them, uh, but there's some uncertainty about the, the testimony of Jesus being resurrected, at least in the early moments. Jesus, uh, rather, Luke records in chapter 24, uh, that and we read the end of chapter 24, uh, where these women these women speak to the disciples, the apostles, and they they share this news. Luke then records the story of two disciples walking on the road to Emmaus. It's a really familiar story to us. Jesus incognito walks with them and agrees to stay with them and eat. And upon breaking bread, it's revealed to them that Jesus was with them. That's the moment. Luke records this. He says, when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. <laughs> I love that. Uh, I have uh, Caravaggio's uh, painting here that helps us perhaps understand a little bit more of this, uh, this image, this story. 
As soon as Jesus breaks the bread, he disappears. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scripture? So contemplate this picture. If, if there's anything you um, get from this evening's sermon, perhaps it's the contemplation of the sermon, regardless of what it is I say. Um, by the way, as an aside, this is the second painting that Caravaggio painted with regard to the supper at Emmaus. The first one is more known, more well-known. He painted that one in 1601. This one he painted about five years later. Um, and and they're, they're quite close to one another, although there are a handful of differences. Spend some time taking a look at that as we work through the passage today. In the space of a couple of verses, Luke remarks two separate times in separate episodes that Jesus appears to his disciples. And each time, he opens their minds to understand the scripture. Jesus wants his disciples to clearly understand his physical resurrected self is with them and not some sort of a, a mystical spirit of some kind. He calms their fears. He invites them to investigate his aliveness through looking and touching and eating. Jesus wants them to know that he's a real, he is real and he's alive. The physical proof of his presence is crucial for the work that he commissions them to, to go from there and do. And Jesus opens their minds to understand the scripture. He says to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Beginning from Jerusalem, you are witnesses to these things. Think about that. Wow. To be one of those people in the presence of the risen Lord. Indeed, it would fill us with joy, I think, even in the midst of confusion and fear and disbelief. Certainly, we couldn't hope to respond any differently to Jesus in that moment than what Luke records in verse 4. That while they were, while, rather, while he was showing his hands and feet to them, they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling. Sometimes Jesus shows up to us in ways that are unique and ways that in which our eyes are opened and we see God's presence in our lives in profound ways that change our direction or our understanding of him. How many of us have spent long, quiet, lonely nights awake on our beds wondering about a loved one who is ill? a financial situation that seems too great to overcome, perhaps an injured relationship. We're worried about the pressures to succeed in work or school. Any of these seem to be able to keep us from the rest, the very rest we need. And then the Lord shows up in a really kind and gracious way. We find ourselves reminded of his word to us, his presence and attention in our lives resolves the pressure and points to a comfort and um, a presence of God that is helpful. In a few minutes at the table, communion table, Eucharistic table, we'll remind ourselves in the breaking of the bread of the miraculous work that Jesus has done on our behalf to free us from the bondage of sin and slavery. 
God reveals himself to us in these elements of bread and wine. And we're invited in this memorial to offer our lives and our services service to God. And we, in fact, we'll pray together uh, the, the prayer of humble access. We say, here we offer and present to you, O Lord, ourselves, our souls and bodies to be a reasonable, holy and living sacrifice that through faith in his blood, we and the whole church may obtain forgiveness of our sins and all other benefits of his passion. You'll remember a year ago before COVID struck the world, it's hard to believe, at services like this, we would come forward, we would come to the altar to receive this gift of grace in the sacrament, right? We're not going to do that this evening. Um, but it's a way of offering ourselves to God, and we, would, we then receive the Lord, right? In the Eucharistic prayers, essentially what we're asking the Lord is to open the eyes of our faith, to illumine and make himself known to us, and to continue the work that he has begun in us through faith in Jesus. Now, John, in his epistle, takes a, a little bit of a different track, although many of these same images are present there. Now, John expresses the substance of his proclamation in the statement that God has come in human flesh, which he and others have heard with their ears, have seen with their eyes, and touched with their hands. Again, in the epistle, John reminds us there's a physical reality to Jesus and the resurrection that is important for faith. He says in verse 1 and 2, the word of life was made manifest. That is, it was made visible or known what was previously hidden or unknown through words and deed. Through Jesus, as the word made flesh, God makes himself known to those living in darkness. The metaphor of light and darkness are routine ideas for the Apostle John. Consider the opening prologue of his gospel. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The Logos, the Word, becomes flesh and dwells among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Creator who before time spoke a word, let there be light, becomes flesh and blood. That one is heard and seen and touched. God's presence is made known through his word when he says, I am the resurrection and the life, or I am the light of the world. God's presence is made known through his deeds. Jesus stands before his disciples as proof of the resurrection. God makes himself visible to a humanity encased in darkness. The light shines in the darkness. I want to invite you to turn your attention to, again, to the projected image here. Caravaggio was thought to be one of the greatest artists with a paintbrush when considering his use of light and darkness. Now, I'm no art scholar, so you have to understand that I was working to understand what was going on here. I did some research. 
The technique is called uh, characurso. I think I got that. Characuro. There we go. Sorry. Those of you who know better. Uh, the technique basically contrasts light and darkness. It demonstrates the skill of an artist in the management of shadows to create a three-dimensional effect in a painting. When we look at this painting, you, you can sort of see it a little bit. We have the light falling on the table. Very purposeful, I think. Uh, Caravaggio puts the Eucharist in the light. And the way the darkness is set up, we, we don't see the, uh, the apostle or disciple on the left-hand side, the one that was walking with him on the road to Emmaus. We, don't, we only see his back, and he's in the dark. And, and then it seems like Jesus is a little bit farther, right? He's on the other side of the table. The way the light works, it almost seems as if we're invited into this table. We're to eat with him at this table as well. And the maid in the background, she, she's come out of the darkness. She's curious about what Jesus is saying, his words. And so she sort of sneaks up on the conversation and tips her head in to, to listen to what's going on. They're enraptured with everything that he's saying. And it seems as though Jesus is about to reach out and take the bread and break it. The words of the hidden master are burning in their hearts. And that much is obvious in the way that the disciples are gripping the table and they're leaning into him. Those disciples were trying to make sense of the truth. They're trying to figure out what had happened to their friend Jesus as a result of the passion narrative. They are confused as to what it all meant for them. We can only see what is illuminated. The Apostle John, writing to his reader, is being challenged, the reader is being challenged by all kinds of false claims. And he states this, he says, this is the message that he has heard from Jesus and proclaims to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. To declare that God is light is to describe him describe his nature as primarily holy in a moral sense, although light can also mean life and salvation. John gives practical and ethical implications of the doctrinal declaration that God is light, and he writes to defend against those who would deceive others, who had heretical ideas about the natures of both God and man. Those deceivers denied the reality of sin, or at least its effects upon one's relation to God. And so we see in chapter 1, verse 6, and uh, through our reading, chapter 2, verse 2 of his epistle, first epistle, each verse contains a conditional clause. There are a number of if-then statements. They're, they follow one right after the other in order. And in each one of those conditional clauses, those if-them statements, it's followed by a clarification or consequence, sometimes positive, sometimes negative. Um, note that there are three false claims in this passage. Verse 6, verse 8, and verse 10 all have false claims about what's happening with regard to Jesus as the resurrected one. And there are three answers that contrast 
those false claims with genuine truth. And John gives correctives and provisions. We see those correctives and provisions in in verse 7, verse 9, and then the first couple of verses of chapter 2. The first false claim is this. John says that it is to have fellowship with God while continuing to walk or live in the darkness. There were people that were suggesting that you could do that, right? And John responds that in doing so, we lie and we don't actually practice the truth. One commentator says, truth is the revelation about God's nature as light. Therefore, we contradict the truth by words and deeds. This is an error in the manner of living. The corrective to this, stated in verse 7, is to continuously walk in the light. That is, we are to live in conformity with God's nature of truth and holiness. God's activity is always consistent with his nature, and so as we walk and live in light of God's nature, we find ourselves in fellowship with other believers, and John says, even God himself. Second, there is a a continual cleansing of our sins through the sacrifice and shed blood of Jesus upon the cross. Sin, we should understand, is the missing of a mark. It's an archer's term. Those of you who are archers would, would understand this. The archer stands a distance away from the target and draws the bowstring back and releases the arrow only for it to miss the mark. That's the idea that stands behind sin. We miss the mark. We miss perfection. We don't have the ability, right? And the atoning work of Christ on the cross takes away our sin. It takes away what we miss. The second false claim stated in verse 8 that John identifies for his readers is to suggest that we are without sin in our nature. Now, this error is more dangerous than the first because it denies the very fact of having sin in the first place. The consequences are worse than the first error as well. They result in practiced self-deception. The truth, John says, with its moral quality, therefore, is not in us. And this is an error now in the manner of being. We misunderstand that we really are sinful. The corrective stated in verse 9, is to confess our sins in both nature and practice so that God, who is faithful and just, he's righteous, will forgive our sins. They won't be held against us, and we are free from their debt. Furthermore, there will be a cleansing from the stain of unrighteousness. This occurs because Jesus satisfies God's justice in his death on the cross for our sins. And so John is encouraging his reader here to confess sin. The third false claim seen in verse 10 is to be without sin in conduct. This is the worst error, right? It is claiming to be incapable of doing sinful things. John gives two consequences, and these consequences are the most serious If we say we are without sin, we make God a liar. That is, he is no longer light as a result, verse 5. And his word and truth is not in us. 
God's nature and revelation are at stake with this false idea. God's word declares sin to be universal and ever-present. We know this from the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. What's the corrective? In this case, it's the first couple of verses of chapter 2. It's that one must not commit sin. Here, John commands his readers to renounce sinful acts or a wrong attitude about it. Sin is serious business, and John wants his readers to deal with it in Christ. That's the point of the corrective, not to sin. Well, this is impossible, and we therefore must go to Jesus, who is our intercessor and our advocate. In Greek, the the paraclete, the, the helper. Jesus is the one that's going to help us in this. This is the provision for John's children that stands before the Father. Jesus does it, and he makes a legal case that our sins are forgiven through his death and resurrection. So John calls Jesus the propitiation for all the world's sin. Propitiation means an act of gaining goodwill from God through a sacrifice or the satisfaction for sin because the punishment of it, death, has been applied to someone else, Jesus. Propitiation does not procure God's love or make him loving. Those are pre-existing conditions of his character. Propitiation renders it consistent for God to exercise his love towards sinners. Simply stated, Christ satisfies God's wrath against sin. Finally, I think it's meaningful to state that, like the disciples, you also are witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. Now, maybe we've not experienced that resurrection in quite the same way that John has, but I think he's on to something here. He says, it's a sweet little phrase that he uses a number of times throughout his epistle. He says, my little children... This is, this is an important moment. He wants his hearers to understand that he has compassion for them. He, he loves them as a father. He wants them to understand this important lesson. My little children, you know Jesus intervenes in your own sinful lives, don't you? Those of you who have confessed your sins and thrown yourselves upon the grace of God because of that unbelievable and marvelous historical and physical resurrection event have experienced the resurrected Lord in your lives. Like the disciples, you also have experienced the joy of fellowship with the Father and his Son, Jesus. You've experienced the fellowship with the disciples. Verse 3 says as much. And it is again experienced in the fellowship we have with one another. Verse 7, especially in the breaking of bread. In a few minutes, we're going to spend some time around this table. And It's going to remind us of these stories of Jesus. It's going to remind us of the death and resurrection of Jesus and the freedom that the one who confesses their sins in Jesus has. It's not just an individual thing, though. It is that we share this table together, and it creates a fellowship amongst ourselves together when we eat of this and we remember that we are in unity with Christ through his death and resurrection. Have we not also had moments where we're reading the scripture and all of a sudden we realize something new about God? 
He presents himself to us through the word and our minds are illumined with truth. Have we not had moments during confession, uh, by the way, which we will momentarily say together, in which we realize the freedom we have in Christ because of his death and resurrection? That moment that we're going to say together, the corporate confession, is not a liturgical filler in which we politely and with dignity remember and confess some unspecific sin. It's a crucial moment that the Apostle John tells us. This is why before that moment we pause in deliberate silence so that on our knees we individually recall the sins that we've committed over the past week and then corporately together we say the confession. It's a moment by which we affirm our sinful inclination, our lostness and our hopelessness to save ourselves And we confess specific sins because Jesus is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In confession, we make space for God to put his illuminating light of Christ and his word upon our lives to drive away the darkness and deception and death. It's what we do when we sin, isn't it? We hide. We put ourselves into darkness that's what Adam and Eve did at the first, at the temptation when they disobeyed God's command. They immediately knew and they hid themselves from God. All sin is like that. We put ourselves in the darkness and John is suggesting what we need to do as God's little children is to confess our sin and come out into the light and live in the way that Jesus wants us to. Now, if you're not a Christian and you're listening in, let me be clear. It's likely that you might think you can have fellowship with God while you continue to walk in sin. It's likely that you are deceiving yourself and thinking that you do not have sin in your life in the first place. It's quite possible you think you're incapable of sinning. And if you think these things at all, if we think them, if we lean into them at all as Christians, we're in danger. Like John, I want to encourage you not to believe these lies. Confess your sins to the one who has covered them for you and live in the light. Bringing into the light those hidden things out of the darkness and see, hear, and touch Jesus, the one who takes those from you and join in the fellowship of the saints and God. Join us in experiencing the risen Lord. For Jesus shows up in the word proclaimed through the reading and hearing of the word preached. Jesus shows up in the breaking of bread in the Eucharist as we remember his death and resurrected life, infusing his life with ours. Jesus shows up in your confession when you are undone with their knowledge and familiarity of your sin and you receive his life. Please pray with me. From the alternative colic for the day, O God, whose blessed son made himself known to his disciples in the breaking of bread, open the eyes of our faith that we may behold you in all your redeeming work. 
who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. They took your life. They could-